Well, hello, everybody. It's Kevin Stevenson. You've joined me on I Don't Care with Kevin Stevenson. And I've got to admit, I'm a little excited today. Uh, I've got a guest on who I have been a, uh, uh, a, a fan of for many years, uh, Mr. Quint Studer. Quint, thanks so much for being on I Don't Care. Thank you, Kevin. I'm uh, happy to be here. I really appreciate it. Uh, Quinn and I had the opportunity to meet many years ago when I was in Kearney, Nebraska uh, at Good Samaritan Health Systems. Uh, Quinn and his team at Baptist in Pensacola, Florida, graciously invited us to come down so that we could shadow his team, ask questions, because we started on this journey uh, for Catholic health initiatives at the time uh, of this very new concept called service excellence. And so uh, we were able to use the learnings that we uh, that we gained at, uh, with Quint and his team and uh, some other folks and created what at that time was the beta site for service excellence for all of CHI. So we were excited about that. And then soon thereafter, Quint started this, the Studer Group and uh, uh, has, has worked with many, many health systems across the country. And, uh, and so, Quint, again, a pleasure to have you on today. Uh, wanted to take this in a little bit different direction because we could talk about patient experience all day, and, uh, but uh, you've written a new book, and I happen to have it here, of course, The Calling, Why Healthcare is So Special. Um, I read this on the plane going up and coming back from a conference recently, and it really touched my heart because... Uh, we have some similar stories about coming from other industries uh, and joining the healthcare industry. Uh, I came from surprisingly electronics distribution and, and started out in business development at a freestanding rehabilitation hospital in Little Rock, Arkansas, about 34 years ago. And never considered getting into healthcare, never considered medical school because I didn't like pain, blood, or needles. And but once I got there and the hospital administrator was smart enough to have uh, a really green, naive kid round with all the wonderful clinicians. Uh, and I finally I learned what they did. And I knew within a couple of days that I was called to healthcare, and I've never been uh, never been sad by by that decision. So anyway, Quint, again, thanks for being with me today. Now, but when you mentioned Little Rock, one of my earliest visits when somebody asked me to come speak was Russ Harrington, who was the president and CEO in Little Rock. And um, what a great leader. Yes. And I will tell you, I was at Baptist. Russ was my mentor. Uh, he is actually the man that got me into healthcare because he happened to be my Sunday school teacher. And knew I was know that. And, uh, and so that that's how that's how my career started. So I. I owe a, a huge debt of gratitude to Russ Harrington. But uh, anyway, talk to me about, you know, how did the calling come about? How did how did that this book come about for you? It, it seems like a, a, a labor of love. It really was. You know, I, I about four or five years ago, John Maxwell invited me and three other people to have, meet with him. <clears throat> and he called us four transformational leaders. And we met in Orlando with him. And one of the questions somebody asked him was, what's your favorite book you've ever written? And he said, it's the book he's always currently writing. And I'm sitting there going, well, that's not me. My, my favorite book was my first book, Hardwiring Excellence. And though I've written, I've enjoyed these other books, that first book was really 
just pouring out and trying to connect and really trying to help middle managers. And that's always where my heart's been. My heart's always been for the person who's a great employee, gets promoted, gets promoted from within, and goes home every night thinking, can I do this job? And can I be the right middle manager? So I always, when I look, when John Maxwell said that, I sort of said, gee, that's not my experience, but it was his. But when I wrote The Calling, that was really, a, a, like you said, a, something, a love. So for example, when my books go audio, I'm normally I don't read the book because it's really hard, really long, and I'm not real good. I actually did the audible of The Calling because I felt so strongly about the book. And I think part of it came from me truly believe we have a calling. Um, you know, what other profession we're in, there's a certain calling. We're lucky in healthcare because we connect it to, to purpose. I think purpose, when we look at what we do, we, we, we're passionate about it, but we keep doing it because the purpose that we're, the passion. So when I got into, um, when my company was purchased by Huron, um, you know, I was at an age and my, when my non-compete kicked in, I sort of knew it would kick in, but, you know, I thought, but wow, was it painful. So to all of a sudden be away for your calling is extremely, extremely painful. So it made me think a lot about getting attracted to things. Now, I, I kept myself busy, really working on um, early brain development with children. It's a big love of mine. Seven, 80% of the learning capacity of child is developed by age three. So I created programs to help moms educate educate moms on building the brain. So when I was able to get back into healthcare, I, I just felt so grateful that I'd been able to get back to my calling. And I really think healthcare is special. And I, I and I will be done here in a little bit with this long, long answer. One of the most impactful books I ever read was Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Essential Habits of Highly Effective People. And he talks about an emotional bank account. And I believe in healthcare, we have an unusual profession because we actually start with a full emotional bank account. There's other professions where you sort of build your emotional bank account through your experience and your learning and your skills. In healthcare, we start pretty strong. If you want to see a, a doctor that feels wonderful about his purpose, find somebody got accepted to medical school and watch how they react. And then watch when they get their white lab coat at medical school. Now, I always say that could be their last great day, but that's a great day. Then they watch their residency. They post it. You know, I've got a residency here, a residency here. So they have, a, they have periods of full emotional bank account. And then they sort of get drained and it goes up. I think employees, leaders, and any organization in healthcare, we start with a pretty full emotional bank account. I mean, I was so excited when I got my first job in healthcare, which was a 35-bed drug and alcohol hospital. I mean, I they sent me a Christmas ornament one year, the company, with the values on the ornament, and I made sure I put it on the tree so everyone could see the values of Parkside Medical Services. Say everywhere I've been, in fact, I'm looking at my desk right now, I have a, a thing with that values, you know, the assembly emblem that they showed. So I have a full emotional bank account. But I think, unfortunately, in healthcare, if we don't replenish it all the time, there's so many more withdrawals than deposits. So the book was really meant about how to replenish ourselves 
And then if we replenish ourselves, how do we replenish others? And that's where I thought the calling, how do you keep your emotional bank account as full as possible? Because if it's full, then we can help other people replenish. If our own emotional bank account is empty, it's hard for us to replenish others. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I'm blessed to be at a hospital that we truly are a family and, and we take care of each other. And, and going back to what I mentioned earlier, when we first met, you know, some 23, 24 years ago, one of the things that I took away from all of that was just the fact that if you take care of your of your associates and your team members, they're going to take good care of other of the physicians and the physicians will take good care of the, of the patients. And so, you know, I carried that throughout my career. And so we really focus on that here. We focus on making sure that everybody feels valued, that they're that they're cared for. If they need some time away, we, we provide that time away for them. And, and you know, certainly during COVID, you know, we were very intentional, and I think most hospitals were very intentional about taking care of their people and making sure they took that time. I think looking at this, um, Kevin, and I've got a new book coming out called The Human Margin. I'm writing with Karen Meese based on who's a PhD at UAB. I, I think you're right. I think most senior leaders wanted to do that, but I think some were way more successful. Than, than others. And I think one of the things our newest research shows, which is really fascinating, because it used to be the most important person in that employee's life was their supervisor. We always used to hear people don't leave their job, they leave their boss. Today, people will leave bosses they actually like if they don't trust the organization and if they don't trust the senior leadership. And so senior leadership has moved up to right near the top of employee engagement. But I also agree with you 100% that when, if you're, I think to get great experience of patients, you have to have employees that have great experiences. Now, it might not be a guarantee because I'll have high organizations like Quint, our employee engagement's really high, but our patient experience just isn't there yet. I said, yeah, but they're willing to be taught. So, you know, it, now it's a skill issue, not a will issue. And sometimes it's just going in and explaining certain things that they can do. For example, Kevin, one of the things we're recommending today and having great success, because HCAPS hasn't moved since 2016 in most places, is instead of asking a boatload of questions and having a checklist in front of you, you just say to the patient and the family, what's your biggest concern or worry right now? And, and that's the magic of that word, because you're going back to where they're at. And according to the University of Colorado, only about 25% of the time is the clinician totally aware of what the number one concern is on the patient. Not that they don't think they know, but they don't ask the question. And when it comes down to the employee, what we're learning again, if I sit in front of you with a software tool with a checklist, that's a transaction. So we're actually encouraging people to stop that and get back to a relationship. I mean, if I come to you and I got a checklist or an iPad, you're thinking I'm selling you something door to door. And, and we really want to make sure it's a relationship. And so one of the things we're, we're doing here is, is trying to help the employee feel comfortable sharing their concerns, because that's another key topic right now, if you look at employee engagement survey. So we learned this from Dr. Jay Kaplan. During COVID, he would ask people how you are. And you know, everybody says, fine, fine, good. Good. And then sadly, you read about somebody committing suicide. It just 12 hours earlier, it told you they were fine. 
So Jay started asking people, if you were a fallen, what's your charge? And, and we've got, we've taken it. What I normally do is take stuff and just do it over and over again and pilot it and see what works. And we normally start off with, you know, how we take care of our phone. We keep it the right temperature. We make sure it's charged. We say goodbye to our phone at night. We know exactly where it is. In the morning, we say hello to our phone. One of the first people we engage with is our phone. My gosh, if the battery starts going out, we panic and look for outlets and look for everything we can. So we've been taking this and saying, what's your battery today? And Kevin, what we find is people will tell you a 70, an 80, a 60, sometimes a 20 or a 30. So the cold book, the reason for calling was to create relationships. And, and that's really what the book's all about. How do we create relationships? And by first taking care of ourselves. So the, the book actually, I started writing the book before COVID. And, and it was really called Leadership is an Inside Job, which the whole message was you got to get yourself right first. And we have things to get in the way, anger, resentment, sure. envy. But then with COVID, it sort of switched. We still have to take care of ourselves. But man, we have to do a lot of other things that we didn't plan on doing because of the pandemic. So a lot of it's about, you know, answering our calling and being grateful. And, you know, front cover of the book says, if you have a heart full of gratitude, it's impossible to fit anything else. And so that's really what it's about and trying to get people. We, we start off many seminars with asking people why they went into healthcare, and then they answer. And then we say, well, why do you work where you work? Because sometimes people don't look upon, like you look upon your employer in a very positive light. But some people in healthcare, it's normal to notice what's wrong. Remember when it wasn't right. And it's amazing, like you said, to hear people talk and they'll say, well, the reason I like working here is because when I went through my divorce, my team members held me together. When I lost my mother, they were at the funeral. Um, when I was struggling, they helped me. Or I, you know, they'll be there when I need them. And also they look around and they say, we work in a pretty cool place. Or when I needed a doctor, because I work in healthcare, I had access to this great medical care. And I've just seen magic happen in a room when people start sharing what they're what they're grateful for. And that's really what the how do we get replenish ourselves and how do we bring gratitude and love? It, the book ends in with love. No, I and I I'm not the smartest guy in the world by any means, but I recognized early on that that I can develop relationships. And so that's that's really what I built my career on. And, 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 you know, as I said, I started on the business development side where relationships are key, but whenever I got in the operations side, I continued that and, and building a relationship, relationships, not only with staff, but certainly with patients, but externally as well within the community, because oftentimes, you know, we in healthcare, we think we know what's best for the community and it should be the other way around. The community should tell us what we, what we need to provide for them. And so you can't find that out unless you go out there and ask people. Uh, so, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Relationships are the key in, in what we do. And I think we have to be careful. And you know, a lot of this, Kevin, is stuff that I've written on and I have to go out and tell people it probably worked 20 years ago, but you got to adjust it. We don't use the same phone 20 years ago that we do use something to communicate. And I still believe in rounding. 
but I think we have to do it differently. We just can't have a software tool and a bunch of questions. It's got to go back to how it started. It started with one question, you know, how can I make this? The question was, do you have everything you need today to do your job? That was the question in like 1993 or 94. That, that was the question at Holy Cross Hospital in Chicago. Um, same thing with the doctor. Do you have what you need today to provide great care to your patients? To a patient, it's always come down to, we want to provide you with great care. You know, what can we do? Now we've moved it to what's your biggest concern or worry. But, you know, go, go back to what I call it, Kevin, what's doable. Because for, for the listeners, and again, every organization's a little different. I call N equals one. However, there are some consistencies right now. About 25% of most people in a management position in a health system have taken that position during the pandemic and have three years or less experience. A number beyond that are new in the new leader. Somebody quit here, so everybody moved up one. So we could have as many as 50% of the people in a either new in management or new in a new role at a time when training almost went away because it had to. So with, and again, I love, I love, if you have an inexperienced team, you reduce the place. If, if you, you know, one of my friends that lives here in Pensacola, Josh Sitton played for the Green Bay Packers. He just got put in their hall of fame. He will tell you when they got a new person that went to the offensive line, they simplified the game. They reduced the scope. And I think in healthcare, we've got to narrow that scope of what we're asking our managers to do right now because of the experience level. Now, maybe someday we can go back to a lot of stuff, but today we call it less equals always. And we do something always, we get the consistency. So that's sort of the, the things that we're looking at because if managers are depleted, they're scared. If you ask most middle managers today, what's your biggest concern or worry? You know what it is? They can't do it. They're not going to make it. They're going to fail. Then if you ask them, what's the number one skill they want? You know what they say? I, I need to learn how to schedule. I came in during the pandemic and scheduling was different. We had agency, we had overtime. So I think it's drilling down to Kevin N equals one and looking at everybody as a human individual and figure out what works for them and how to help them really be successful and, and feel loved. And, and we get into I'll, in my talk about belonging. The other thing that's on the top six list of what people look for in a job now is that sense of belonging. So the other exercise, I like giving exercise to listeners. We tell people to do, you know, ask people that work for you, when do you feel that this is the place for you? Tell me times when you felt you belonged, because if we know that, then we can continue to do that because that's what people want, because people want to have that sense of sense of belonging. And that's the challenge actually with the virtual workplace. People love working virtual that work virtually, but they're not as loyal to the company at times because they don't have the teamwork, the sense of belonging. So I've really been focusing a lot on creating how do how do I know what makes you feel like you belong? And then how do I make you comfortable? Because I want you to feel like this is the place for you because you can be a nurse anywhere. You can be a pathologist anywhere. You can be a phlebotomist anywhere. So how do we make this the anywhere that you want to stay? You know, I remember 20 plus years ago working with the Gallup group 
and working on improving uh, employee satisfaction. And they gave all of the supervisors and managers and directors the, their, their questionnaire. And I'll never forget looking at the one question. And I thought, well, why is that on here? And it was, do you have a best friend at work? And I just remember thinking, you know, again, 20, 25 years ago, I was still young in my career. And I'm thinking that, well, that's a crazy question. But as I've gotten older and those relationships have become, you know, so much more important to me um, in seeing really how hard this work is. You know, if you don't have a best friend here, you know, alongside of you doing what we do each and every day, you're not going to make it. And so, you know, you're right. We've got to make sure that our that our associates, our employees just feel, frankly, feel loved. And, and we, that's we, we spend a lot of time doing that. Well, you guys do great work. And, and I think that, that this love thing is pretty fascinating because if you read any of my books before the calling, I don't think I put the word love in there. Um, I'm not sure it might have showed up, but I don't recall love. Um, that, that happened in 2019 when a friend of mine was dying of cancer. It's in the book. And um, before he passed away, he died young, 54. In fact, I saw his wife, Louise, the other day, John Meislick. And as he was dying, he was telling people, you know, that he loved, giving them sort of like what he hoped for them. And one of the things he said to me is he said, Quint, you got to tell people you love them because he had told his father he loved them right before he died, because and they didn't have a great relationship. And he just said, tell people you love them. So I've been doing that. And, you know, I, I end a lot of notes with much love, love you. And, and in my book, I talk about the, the time. And But, it, you know, Mark Clement from TriHealth, I've known him since 1992. And I'm with him up in um, TriHealth. I'm on his board at TriHealth. I'm on the 12th floor of the Baldwin building. Now, I've known Mark. We know each other's wives. We know we got kids. And if you ask both Mark and I, are we good friends? We'd both say yes. Okay. But probably not as intimate as I'm going to go with this story then. So I'm sitting there with Mark and he's been a great mentor to me. And I know I told him I like him, appreciate him, but I've never said I loved him. So we're going down the elevator and I'm thinking, this is the day I'm going to tell him I love him. But, you know, it's like going to mental health therapy, Kevin, where you wait till there's three minutes to go and then you throw the thing out at the therapist knowing the hour is up. So my Uber driver's pulling up and I look at Mark and I remember I've known Mark for 41. We've never had this conversation. And I said, Mark, I just want you to know I love you. He looked at me, took a step back and said, your Uber driver is here. <laughs> I, I hopped in the car. And I drove to the, you know, went to the airport and flew out. Two to three weeks, two to three weeks later, I got a very wonderful, I get teary-eyed telling the story from Mark Clement telling me he loves me. And do you know, since then, we end most of our conversations with I love you, most of our texts with I love you. And it doesn't mean you're not going to hold people accountable. It doesn't mean you're not going to have a difficult conversation because we love our children and we do it. So I, I think we've got to not be afraid to tell our workforce that we love them. I've got I've got a story to tell because you mentioned you mentioned telling people that you love them uh, at uh, ACHE. And uh, so a couple of weeks later, I was at Becker's and uh, was there. And one of my a guy I actually hired to his first healthcare job 
uh, about 31 years ago, uh, was actually speaking. And so we caught up. We hadn't seen each other in a year or so. Uh, and I will step back. I'm pretty good about telling my friends and my family, hey, I love you, because we've had, like you, had friends pass away much too soon. And so I didn't want to lose that opportunity to tell somebody I love them. But I've never really done that in the works in the workplace. And so, again, so I see my friend, Ron, uh, and uh, he had brought his wife. I brought my wife. So we go out to dinner that night. And uh, as we're leaving, we're hugging. I'm a big hugger. We're hugging. I say, hey, man, I love you. And he did the same thing. He kind of stepped back and looked at me and goes, I love you too. And that was it. But, but you know, I, I think we need to take more time and do that in the workplace because, like I said, what we do is hard every day. And people need to know that, that they're valued and they need to know that they're loved because, you know, we spend more time here, honestly, than we do with our families. And so this is our, this is our second family. And for some people, it's their first family. Uh, oh, I agree. And I, I think... Um... It just works. And, and I think people are smart. They, they don't think, oh, because he tells us he loves us, we can not do our job. You know, that that's rational. I, I'm just saying, and, you know, since I've been doing it, Tom Dahlberg, who's a friend of mine, posts quite a bit on love. He's like the Louis Viscalia before, you know, I remember him was hugging and loving everyone. And, and Tom, there's so many great examples. You know, it's sort of like now that you've seen it and, and, it's interesting. I'm going to tell another Mark Clement story here. Um, I write a weekly column, and for some new, another new book coming out with that. So, Mark, I, I got a, a woman who worked, and they just did some training. And Mark got up on the stage and said, I want to talk about accountability. He said, and there's a four letter word for accountability, and it's spelled L O V E. And he said, I, 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 and sometimes hold people accountable because I love our mission and I want it to continue to fulfill our mission. I love this workplace and I want to make sure it's a great workplace. And I want I love you, which means we're going to do everything we can to provide you the training you need to be successful. But I loved it when he said, you know, a four letter word for accountability is love. And I, I think, again, that's something that you don't see. I think you're seeing more of it because that's, that's what that comes down to is letting the workforce know that, that, like you said, you love your family. And if, you know, how many years, how many years, Kevin, have we said we're like family, but we don't tell people we love each other. Well, then what type of family you've been living in all these years? Exactly. Okay. We've got a couple of minutes left. And, and while I've got you, I have the, I have the distinct honor and pleasure of, of being able to proctor our administrative residence that we get from Baylor university every year. Give them, give them a couple of words of advice from, from you for, for the years that you've been doing this work. Uh, just let's, let's leave them with something from you. Yeah, I'll give them two. And they interrelate. One is be kind to yourself. Trust me, there's enough times when things aren't kind. So be kind to yourself. And I think sometimes we're not kind to ourselves. I tell people if you took somebody in healthcare and put them in a boxing ring, They'd be getting the heck beat out of them and there'd be no one in the ring with them because we're because of our perfectionism, which we have to be at, at times. We get caught up thinking it's all the time. And I think we're, we're healthcare people are very, very hard on themselves. I mean, try to compliment somebody in healthcare. You know, I say, hey, you're doing a good job. Well, I'm working on it. Now you're doing a good job. Well, it's not me. So and this other one ties with it. Don't filter out the positive. So when I was 31 years old, 
going through a very difficult time in my life. They call it hitting rock bottom. I'm going to therapy and I'm going to a therapist called Amy Storm. And I, she has no idea the impact she had. And we're in therapy. And of course, I'm there because I'm depressed, which means life ain't exactly smooth right now. Things were bad. And um, we had a constructive conversation. And, and one day, maybe the third or fourth session, she said, you know, I need to give you some feedback. She said, you're so hard on yourself. She said, whenever I try to give you a positive word or a compliment, you, you almost cross your legs, cross your arms and turn away from it. You deflect it. She said, I think maybe one of the reasons you feel so bad on your insides is you've been filtering out all the positives. So my, my message, besides being kind to yourself, is don't filter out the positives. And it's really hard. Trust me, when you go to healthcare, people filter out the positives. And I think you've got to be okay saying thank you and feeling good about the work you do and the difference you make. Well, Quint Studer, I, I can tell you for, for me personally, you made a huge impact on my life and my career. And for that, I want to thank you. And, and I will tell you, I love you. Well, and, and I love I just love the fact we got Russ Harrington in common. Who would have thought that? I mean, that is when I was at Holy Cross Hospital, I think, or Baptist, one of them. Uh -huh. Russ was one of the first CEOs that said, can you come speak? And it just shows Russ was always trying to be the best because it was a good organization already. But Russ always wanted to be the best, not because he can win some award. Spiritually wanted to meet the mission of the organization. So I love that we've got Russ in common. I love you. Thanks. Well, Quint Studer, it's been such a pleasure having you on. I don't care. Uh, I, I can't thank you enough. And so with that, uh, folks, you have been treated to a, a I hope, a, a wonderful half hour. So join us next time on I Don't Care. I'm Kevin Stevenson. Take care. <laughs>